Good morning, and it is a good morning, despite what anyone would have us think. We are alive, and therefore, we're able to make change in this world. And in making this change, we need to know that we can go forward to make this world a better place. And that's so important for us to understand. We can make this world a better place. Litigation, legislation, and protest has been the cornerstone of social change. I've said this so many times before. My trifecta of sorts. Litigation, legislation, protest、It、doesn't necessarily have to be in that order, but those three things must come together. And there has to be a vision for that change. And I think we have that now. Unfortunately, it had to take another another death of a black man, another death of a human being, the ending of a life of an innocent, in order for this country to see the soullessness. In racism, George Floyd died at the hands of Officer Derek Chauvin, the afternoon of May twenty-fifth in Minneapolis, Minnesota, two thousand twenty. Like so many other crimes committed in this way, we remember those events because of the protests that arose afterwards. These protests didn't begin with Michael Brown and Ferguson, nor Trayvon, nor Tamir, nor even Rodney King. Think about Emmett Till in 1955, and we can go back further because it was in 1919, the Red Summer of 1919, where there were so many attacks on black people. They call it the Red Summer because blood ran in the streets, and in the fields, and in rural towns, and lynchings, and all of this heinousness in this country's history. Human beings burned alive. Soldiers, black soldiers, returning from World War II, massacred because they were wearing their uniforms. This is America, the America no one talks about, the America we must talk about, or it will implode. And every time we come close to that change, sometimes it's a full-length change, and sometimes it's just a band-aid on a festering wound. We won't know. Other generations will look back and say, "What did you do during this time period in which change could happen?" Well, let's see what types of changes are on the table. We know that there is anti-lynching legislation. Over four thousand human beings brutally lynched. Not all of them African American. European immigrants and others have been lynched in this country as well. Mexicans have been lynched. Latinos, Hawaiians were lynched in Hawaii. There have been lynchings throughout this history. This is a barbaric tactic brought to the United States, brought to America from Europe. So we need to understand that this extrajudicial process of mobs, and we're talking about in Minneapolis, a hundred years ago. Mobs, anywhere from a thousand to ten thousand men, converged on a small town in Minnesota, and lynched three men based on a lie from a white woman. And we saw from you know <laughs> Central Park Karen 
<laughs> what happened here in our Central Park with some white woman who gets on the phone and says, oh, a, a black man is going to attack me. I'm being threatened. You see how easily it's done? Even though he is recording, she had no shame as he even recorded her doing it. That's how easily it was done before. And thousands of, of men brutalized behind these allegations. And not saying all the allegations were unfounded. But that's why we have a judicial process. That's why people are tried before a jury of their peers. And if there's evidence beyond a reasonable doubt, they are convicted. And then they serve time. 1,000, 5,000, 10,000 white men converging on a jail. The jailers letting the men out to be torn to pieces. Their bodies could be burned. There were pieces of bodies that were cut off and sold. They were on display in store windows. The reason why you can go online right now and put in the word lynching, L-Y-N-C-H-I-N-G, at this moment, and you will see images of lynched bodies hanging from trees, charred on fires, and white men standing smiling. I wrote a poem, White Privilege, and I will use it on this show. I will, I will recite that poem on this show. Not today, but I will. And you will understand white privilege comes from murder. And we'll discuss that on another show because that's what lynching is. Lynching is, I am going to kill you. And that sends a message. And I must do it in the most heinous way to send a message to you and all those in your community. This is what will happen if you get out of your quote unquote place. We have some attempts to have legislation passed. That will end lynching or at least make lynching a crime. And lynching has taken place, as we've said, for over a hundred years. As we go forward, based on what has happened with the George Floyd case, we have anti-lynching that's been introduced. This anti-lynching bill introduced is one of the more recent attempts to have ways to countermand lynching in this country. The Senate has undermined any anti-lynching bills that have come up through the Congress throughout this history. The early anti-lynching bills began in the early 1900s, and there were certain anti-lynching bills, let me be corrected, anti-lynching bills began in the 1800s after slavery ended. And even then, they could not be passed. And then when slavery had ended, Jim Crow segregation began. Plessy versus Ferguson in 1896 opened the doors for more lynchings. And we had more attempts at anti-lynching bills. Unfortunately, even when they passed the House, the Senate then blocked the bill. We have an anti-lynching bill that's before the Senate right now, and it's Rand Paul from Connecticut, who his, or Tennessee, I should say, who's blocking that bill. The other defunding bill we have, defunding the police, we're going to talk a little bit more about what does it mean to defund the police. We don't, 
I don't think um, people in Minneapolis, when they introduced the defunding of the police, were talking about not having police at all. It's a matter of changing the funding system and recreating the police. Our law enforcement began as an amalgam of three things. One, the slave catchers from the South. Yes, slave catchers. And when you talk about the South, we're not talking about deep South Mississippi. Slave catchers were as far north as Maryland. Maryland had slavery. We need to understand that. We want to think this is about Alabama, Mississippi. Florida had slavery. We might think of Florida as Mickey Mouse, but no, Florida is a slave state. Florida is a southern state. As you leave Miami, you will see just how deeply embedded racism is in Florida. And so what we need to understand is that the police department began from slave catchers, and militia formed to put down Native American uprisings, and then the bobbies from the English police departments formed there. Those three came together to create our policing system. We have never addressed the inherent roots of slavery and the oppression of Native Americans in our policing system, and that's why it needs to be overhauled. It is the last bastion of slave um, mentality, the sense that this country, whites are protected against blacks, and the thin line, that thin blue line, is the policing system. And without the sense that this police force is supposed to be there to protect and serve all of us, and not just to protect and serve whites against black people and other people of color, then we will continue to have, and that's why we've continued to have this problem. So defunding the police is not taking away all funding for the police so that malicious groups can take over. No, that's not what we're talking about. And we also need to understand that a month ago, we had whites with loaded weapons in state capitals threatening the leaders of those states. That was this country as well. We need to understand there was not one arrest no police officers, nothing was done to those people at all. That is the difference in policing in this country, that George Floyd, who was being harassed by these four officers because Officer Lane, who in all three of them are the, of the accomplices are for aiding and abetting, are, are, have been arrested, and Officer Chauvin has been arrested, we know this, However, it took all of this protest, destruction, in order for this to happen. And the prosecutor's office is the blame for this because the prosecutor's office across the, the country is very adept, especially when it comes to an African-American suspect. Uh, to, they know how to get an indictment. They know how to bring charges. But when it's a police officer, a white police officer and a black victim, all of a sudden, the prosecutor's office becomes this neutral party. The word prosecute does not equate with neutrality. There is a job the prosecutor is supposed to do. And because they work hand in glove with the police department day to day, the police department investigates. The police department will be the witnesses. The police department runs the studies. All of these scientific you know, um, evidence, all of that comes through the police department and our criminal justice system. It relies on the police to do a job. I know too many people who have gone into policing to help people. 
but those people in there who are of good will and good spirit know who the rogue cops are and they're afraid of those rogue cops as well and i always say if you're afraid of them what are we as civilians supposed to do and so without that prosecutor's office actually defending the rights of the black victims going as zealously against those police officers as they would in any other case and having the uh, we hope having the sense that they are not going to continue to bring extra charges against people of color because they can get away with it because of the most vulnerable pressing into plea deals telling people that if you make me go to trial that I'm going to throw every charge at you possible these are the things and and where is the punishment only the leader the DA is of this mess stands for election the rest of these people are government employees with very well financed unions so it's very difficult to make this change outside of the national legislation that's been introduced and that national legislation the, the national legislation would do a number of things it would make lynching a federal crime it would limit the sale of military weapons to the police and give department of justice the authority to investigate state and local police for evidence of department-wide bias or misconduct and I think this is very important for us to understand that the chokeholds and other types of holds, those chokeholds are used against the vulnerable, white vulnerable people who are poor, people of color. We don't see policing being evenly dispatched. All of these issues, I think, are very important for us to address. And we need to watch, take care and be sure that we are vigilant I, I will quote Thomas Jefferson, the price of freedom is vigilance. So if Thomas Jefferson, slaveholder, president, ambassador, drafter of the Declaration of Independence and pedophile, said the, the uh, price of freedom is vigilance, then we know that we must all be vigilant. We must be vigilant and watching what happens with our law. This is Law of the Land with Gloria J. Brown Marshall. We're going to go for a short break and come back with our guest, Herb Boyd. He's going to tell us. Let us know. Herb Boyd is the author of Black Detroit. What's the difference between what's going on now and what happened during the, the riots and uprisings and, and counter-uprisings that took place during the 1960s? And he's written extensively on Malcolm X. I would like to know, what would Malcolm X think? What would he do? What would you think? that that great leader would do. And also, Martin Luther King, we, we need to have a discussion about what's happening now and contrasted with what happened then, what didn't happen that needs to happen now that we're back in the same place. We'll be right back after this musical break with professor, writer, genius, Herb Boyd.
We're here with writer activist Herb Boyd. Good morning, Herb. How are you? Hi, I'm doing very well. Uh, mm -hmm. Under the circumstances, we're black people still alive for another day. So I guess we're doing very well, right? Aluta continua. The struggle continues. Yes. And speaking of that, one of the major issues in Black Detroit, you talk about um, the people's history of self-determination. And it appears to me we're going through a time in which we're demanding that people understand self-determination. And self-determination means that we want to be treated in a certain way. And our laws say that we are to be treated in a certain way. And that way must be determined, at least the standard by which we're being treated, by what we feel is happening, despite what other people may think we should accept. How is this different? Or what are the similarities between what was taking place in the 1960s and what's taking place now? You know, just the other day, Gloria, I was reading a fairly cogent um, uh, concern that was voiced by a young activist who is not who was not old enough to remember the 60s however he was a student of history and he said that for him the situation bore the earmarks of a, like a triple whammy um, first of all it had all of the the earmarks you know of the great depression in terms of the economic situation we're facing in the country today the whole high unemployment rate he said that it reminded of the civil rights movement, all the people marching across the nation, concerned, outraged, angry about police brutality. And he said that with the whole COVID-19, he said that kind of takes you all the way back to the Spanish flu, 1917, mm -hmm. 1918. So you got all these things converging at once. And, and it's compounded, exacerbated by the fact that we have a so-called leader that enhances and does little to alleviate any of these crises that we're facing. So that means that, of course, how disproportionately it impacts people of color makes it all, more, all the more devastating, Gloria, all the more devastating in terms of the loss of lives, you know, the pre-existing conditions as black people in particular, in this country that make them more vulnerable to any kind of uh, epidemic, any kind of crisis that occurs, be it social, political, or economic. Well, uh, and part of this, I, I guess I'm concerned about in litigation, legislation, protest, is the vision. Because without vision, mm. the people perish. Was there more mm. of a vision or were people trying to figure out what the vision was of I mean, so many times we know what we don't want, but is mm -hmm. there some vision even now, or as you compare it to the 1960s and the uprisings that took place in Detroit, um, was there a vision there or was it more of a sense of what we don't want police to do to us? That's a very good question. Uh, I think one of the concerns we have is that, Having visionary leaders is always such an important aspect, ingredient in any kind of moving forward. At the same time, you know, the people mobilized. And we always concern, Gloria, that this is an upsurge, this is an uh, uptake, or out, an outbreak of, uh, of, uh, of a very, very disturbing situation 
of a man's life, you know, his neck being comp- compressed by a police officer's knee. And, and it's, it's highlighted on social media. And everyone can see it again and again, almost like the Eric Garner situation that we had mm-hmm. here in Staten Island that you remember so well. And and so it arouses like the whole Occupy movement that, that kind of flittered, flopped, but never really flew. So, you know, you get this, this outrage and it's temporary. And then you worry, like, I think one of the things that's different about the situation now is to see so many young people in the street and a, a very diverse mixture of people out there, extraordinary number of uh, young white people out there. And the polls suggesting that, you know, it's a more and more of a growing consciousness and they're accepting the fact that systemic racism exists in this country. Now, once you got all that on the table, you know, how do you begin to, what's the solutions? How do you move forward? What do you do about that? I think one of the cries that we're hearing consistently from city to metro uh, municipality to another is that what about defunding the police well that's only part of the answer something has to be done about the behavior of police officers in this country i don't know if it's disciplinary if you know you have to punish them in such a way as they understand that they cannot operate with impunity and and that's another part of this here remedy of course the visionary thing that you talk about well, we have a few people out there who seem to be uh, somewhat invested with some vision. Whether or not that's ever going to be operative is another question. Certainly, uh, Reverend William Barber, you know, some of the things that he'd be doing, you know him very well. And some of the things he's proposed, particularly in terms of poor people in this country, picking up some of the ideas of Dr. King. Reverend Sharpton, you know, he's been on the uh, front lines my goodness, I've been following him for more than a generation here in New York City. So I don't see him as an ambulance chaser as he's kind of sometimes uh, demeaned. I see him more or less coming. People call him in. I mean, the family out there in, uh, in Houston, they called him in for George Floyd. And so we'll see how that plays out in terms of people continuing. I think, what, wait, 13 days now, 14 days of protests in the streets? That's a pretty long time. But back in the 60s, we had once again, mm-hmm. it was it was a impetus of the, the some of the uprisings were police violence against civilians. And so we're still operating. And I've said out of this um, construct of a policing uh, mindset based in slave catchers, militia and the bobbies mm-hmm. of England, a mixture of such that was never really analyzed and deconstructed for a modern time. And so defunding the police to me doesn't mean taking away the money for all police forces. It means looking at the culture of the police. And I'm going to give an example. Now, I'm going to give two examples. So we had in upstate New York, in Buffalo, we saw a 75-year-old white man who was pushed to the ground? He's fall. He, he's he's fallen backwards. His you can obviously see that he's unconscious. There's blood coming from his head, and there are police mm-hmm. officers. Now all of these people are white. Police officers. One police officer leans down to try to help the man because he was pushed by police, and that's why he fell, lost his footing, and fell. And the other officer stopped him. 
I want to give that example, and I want to then give the example of what happened with George Floyd. When there's an officer who's only been on the force for four days, these three officers were being trained by Derek Chauvin in Minneapolis on that fateful day in George Floyd's life was taken. So they were trained. And so here we have Derek Chauvin showing these three recruits how to terrorize the black community, what to do to a big guy. This is what you do. This is how you kill them. This is how you hurt them. He is showing these younger people. So it seems to me it doesn't matter if we change, you know, the, the, I mean, I say it doesn't matter. It's necessary to change the philosophies and the trainings within the academy, that the classes that they take before they gain um, um, entry to the academy. But inside, the mindset is that the more corrupt ones will train the new ones into the behavior no matter what they've actually been taught in the academy. True. <laughs> that's, a heavy, that's a heavy indictment, but I think a real one. Uh, Dory, one of the things, you know, we've talked about this before in terms of the um, what's done in terms of in, going through the academy, beyond p- policy and training, the attitudinal, maybe the psychological aspects to what extent are they these recruits are they examined you know and i mean they're given racial quotient tests to determine the extent of the racist tendencies they may have given a situation i'm I'm not sure exactly how much of that is really carried out to winnow out the potential dangers that exist with one officer and of course you know they talk about one bad apple in the, in, the, in the barrel or in the bushel basket, but we know how that how infectious that can be, and that one bad apple can kind of you know color the whole department. And of course, that situation in Buffalo was a very interesting one because one of the first reactions from the police department is that that he tripped and fell. I mean, you can see how that would resonate if you didn't have the video. What would happen with George Floyd if the situation was not documented or Erie Gardner? These situations weren't documented. We just had an incident just a few days, two days before George Floyd, a black man, Maurice Gordon, his situation that happened in Jersey where he was uh, on a traffic stop. And he's blown. His life is taken, extinguished. We don't have a a video, although they said that one of the police officers had a camcorder, but I don't know exactly to what extent that's been exposed. But that happened two days before George Floyd. Then, of course, you've had three or four incidents that occurred thereafter, which have not received even Breonna with the Breonna Taylor situation. That was that, that was not filmed. That was not documented. We don't have indication exactly what went down even before George Floyd. What was the situation that led up to a seemingly a harmless? situation. I mean, these unarmed, Gary Gardner was unarmed, the whole cigarette situation that seems to have a common situation with them, you know, to say nothing of a traffic stop, we can go, I mean, we can, Sandy, we can go on and on talking about situations historically, and I think you're right to kind of frame it in the sense of going all the way back to patty rollers during the whole plantation period, and what was done about that situation 
war, the Emmett Till, the whole Emmett Till lynching. I think the, it's, we have a modern-day lynching with George Floyd. Yes, we do. And what I want to do, and, and this is something I think is, is so necessary, and I'm going to put you on the spot after our musical break. When we come back, sure. there are I, I want to talk about Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, uh, and yes, and Martin Luther King's book, Where Do We Go From Here? Chaos or Community, is so vital mm. for people to read at this point. He was prescient in saying that these different things were going to continue to happen unless we started thinking about ourselves as a community. And he also talked about, you know, the type of protests. And, of course, since he was in the, uh, an advocate and proponent of nonviolence, um, we're going to talk about how he would see what is happening in our protests and, and what role that protest has actually played, destructive, constructive, somewhere in between. We'll be right back with Herb Boy, who is the author of Black Detroit, a book you must get, and not just um, a journalist, activist, and teacher, but also the author and editor of 23 books. We'll be back with a brilliant Herb, Herb Boy right after this message. The Temptations, Ball of Confusion. I know you remember that one, don't you? <laughs> take me back. Take, take me back. <laughs> oh, yeah. I grew up with them. I grew up with them in Detroit. Yes, indeed. <laughs> oh, my goodness. That must have been something back in the day. And then today, here we are. Um, mm -hmm. is it, is it, does it feel like more of the same or do you see the difference in what's happening? I know we've made advancements in so many other areas, but when it comes to our being killed and our being people of African descent, being killed with impunity, I don't see mm. the change. I don't see the difference in, in, in the time everywhere else there's change in our, in our lives. But here it feels like we could go back to 1919 in the red summer. Amen. Uh, James Baldwin said it very well, and of course he's he's been he's being evoked again and again in terms of social commentary and what's happening at this time. The whole fire next time. It's classic prophetic book. The more things change, the more they remain the same. Glory, I think you. So it's a mixture of 
you know, more of the same, and at the same time, a whole different kind of uh, understanding and exposition. Because, you know, we didn't have, back in the 60s, obviously, radio, television, the whole printed media, we had that going. But there's a new element added to this here recipe, and that's the whole social media. And that's been so absolutely crucial in terms of exposition, exposing, videoing, documenting these situations so larger audiences can see it. So, I mean, they cannot hide, they can't cover up these things as historically they did so, so many times. And we never knew exactly what were the circumstances that led up to this particular death or this incident. People pretty much have, with, I think the, the whole Rodney King thing was a revelation. Here we saw a black man being just, just beaten again and again, 56 blows. I think it's one of the counts that I read about it. Heaven knows how many it was, but it was a considerable number of blows that he took out there. And that sparked an uprising back in 1992. So if you go back in time, and both of us, we're students of history. Our books have chronicled incident after incident. I mean, I was just stunned as a young person. The whole Emmett Till situation continues to live with me all these many years, particularly being in touch with members of the family, working with, you know, working with Simon, you know, who he was right there. Simeon Wright was right there with with Emmett when he was snatched from him and abducted and, and ultimately just absolutely brutalized, savagely killed his body thrown in the Tallahatchie River back in the summer of 1955. Rosa Parks, when she, in a very defiant way, kept her seat. She took a stand by keeping her seat. Back in December the 1st, 1955, she said she was thinking about Emmett Till. Yes, she refused. Yes. Right. So there's a connection right there. I look. I, I was looking at those signs of all these young people out there, and I saw BLM, BLM, the Black Lives, the Black Lives Matter movement had really stimulated this thing more than anything. And BLM, it was for us back in the 60s, particularly after the civil rights movement, as you move into the human rights period of Malcolm X, meant the Black Liberation Movement. And I think we're going to have to find, let's join those things. Let's bring them together. A lot of our seniors, I was looking at the crowds out there. You didn't see too many seniors out there because, of course, the virus had much to do with keeping them indoors. But then again, they're coming out more and more now because of the whole reopening of the uh, communities across this country. They feel a little bit less vulnerable then because we know that the virus was really attacking a lot of our seniors, particularly uh, disproportionately people of color. So now they can feel a bit more emboldened to come out and you'll see a, a aging, a little bit more of an aging of these demonstrations if they continue. It's hard to sustain these things over and over again because, you know, now a lot of those people have been are coming out because they had been hunkered down. So it's an opportunity to get back out. And you hope that it's a mixture of this outrage about the police incident, a little bit about the virus, and they've been hemmed up and hunkered down, and it's a chance to get in the street again. So it's a, it's a mixture of things there, but you're hoping that 
is it can be some way taken to the voting. We got to take it, as you know so well. And of course, that's going to be another battle we're going to have in terms of how this year voting thing is going to be uh, carried out, conducted as we move into uh, to November, because that's probably one of the most critical elections we'll have in American history. Yes. And now I want two things. I want mm-hmm. us to talk about um, where do we go from here, from chaos to community or chaos or community, Martin Luther King. But I, I know you knew Malcolm X. What do you think his <laughs> view on this would be? And I know that's difficult. I'm putting you on the spot. But what would you think? <laughs> if, yes. <laughs> to be in the mind of Malcolm X. Um, um, what, what do you think he would make of this? I would certainly love to get into the mind of both Dr. King and Malcolm. Uh, There's uh, two books out there that have done a good job, I think, of uh, looking at the potential convergence of their ideas. Uh, Penel Joseph, he has one out, and even before that, the Reverend James Cone, and looking at those two, uh, the kind of trajectory of their lives and the kind of possibility of their coming together. They only met once, Gloria. That was back, that kind of a coincidence or somewhat planned, people say, <laughs> back at the, in the uh, state, state capitol building in 1964. And that was and a that, quick And that very moment. famous, yeah, that very famous photo. Yeah. That we have exactly. of them shaking hands and smiling. Yes. <laughs> yeah. But even before that, I mean, shortly thereafter, you know, you're moving from March into February, you know, of 1965 and February the 4th, 1965, Malcolm is down in. He's in Selma, Alabama. By that time, Dr. King is in jail. But you remember in the film, you know, you have uh, there's a couple of films that have been depicted how Malcolm Mm -hmm was hooked up with uh, Coretta Scott King and just uh, told her, hey, you tell Malcolm, we got his back. So it was an indication right there that uh, that Malcolm had already begun to tamp down his attack on the civil rights uh, leaders, this so-called Big Six. So he was kind of tamping that down and beginning to focus more and more, as you can see that his travels in 1964 and into a little bit of 65 when he went to uh, to London and to other parts of Europe to say nothing of 64 when he traveled across Africa, North Africa, and into Saudi Arabia, the whole Middle East situation. He was beginning to become, you know, take this whole situation of racism and discrimination and the hostility against black people in this country to a world court. He was taking it to the summit, the second summit you know, in Cairo, Egypt in 1964. So that's where he was. Dr. King was moving in a similar fashion and began to become more and more class conscious and begin to talk about not only black people in this country, but poor people in this country. The whole, with the sanitation workers down in Memphis, all of this was an indication of a growing uh, international perspective and, and, a, and a focus on class situations in this country. So James Cone and Penel Joseph certainly on the right track in terms of seeing a possible convergence of those ideas. I mean, you look at the situation today, I would think that what you saw in the last moments of their lives is indicative of where they would be today because they had not stopped. They, their lives were snuffed out 
because of where they were at that time. So it's easy to, to kind of speculate that they would be right on the front lines, right out there in the middle of this, although both of them would be in their 90s. <laughs> Well, well, we know we had John Lewis, um, who's um, right mm-hmm. now battling battling cancer, who was out um, among the protests just to watch to see this happening. And I think it's really interesting, going back to the young people involved, that this is nature saying, let's, let's the next generation take its place in here. And one of the concerns, and I'm going to be quite honest, this has been a criticism I've had of your generation, Herb, that you guys did not train my generation on how to be a leader. And I don't understand why that happened. I don't understand what was going on that people did not even see our generation as people who could be leaders of this movement. No matter how old I am, I'm still treated as a child by the older generations. And so the, the, the um, pandemic did something that generations would not do. It required older people to stay home and therefore younger people got to take their time and go out into the sunlight and take their leadership roles. So nature decided we're going to allow these young people to step up, even if people uh, who older generations weren't going to allow them to do it. And because they were hunkered down, the older people didn't have a say as much as they normally would. And these young people could come up and do the things they needed to do based on their generation. And I want to talk about one other thing very quickly because I know we're running out of time. Mm-hmm. I want to go mm-hmm. to the whole social media that you mentioned. And the social media, I guess, based on King's strategies was to use the media. And so now we have social media. Everyone has a camera. But when he had his strategies around the movement, the film that we see could be thought of as the social media of that day, that he wanted the cameras to be there so that the world could see what was taking place in the Deep South. Do you agree? Oh, no doubt about it. One of the things that Oh, back as we celebrated his uh, the last birthday um, and his uh, assassination, and we focused on you know to the extent to which he was a field marshal in terms of understanding the media. He understood the media very well and how to to orchestrate a situation to bring them in. Some of those things were highlighted by his own going to jail. You know, he knew that if he'd go there, the cameras would follow him. And so it began to pick up a certain kind of resonance in such a way as that, that people begin to identify. They identified with him. They identified with his personal predicament. And then by extension, you know, in terms of a larger community. And that's what he was trying trying to suggest, you know, getting the media there to get it on television. He understood very well. He was a very shrewd operator in that sense. So he had understanding in the media in the same way that social media exists today. And you're absolutely right in terms of seeing the, the relationship, the connection between those two things. Because, you know, when he was out, he was a drum major for justice. He was also right in, in front of commanding, he was a commanding general in terms of understanding how to position his troops. When he was in jail, remember his letter from the Birmingham jail, we can't lose what he was saying there to those people, to his uh, his lieutenants. He was talking to, you know, what he was saying to Ralph Abernathy, who was his uh, chief lieutenant. 
here's what you here's what I want you to do. What he was saying to Ella Baker, here's how I want you to do things. So he was really orchestrating from behind bars. He knew exactly how to command his uh, troops, get his troops in place, get the media attention, and make this a larger collective, um, a critical mass of people coming together about the situation in this country. So you're right, Dean Gloria. He was he was an orchestrator superb. Well, I thank you so much, Herb. Herb Boyd. Oh, it's is a pleasure. Not- and and I have to I have to um, be honest for full disclosure. Herb Boyd is also one of my mentors. He is a journalist, <laughs> activist, teacher, and author. Editor of twenty three books, including the Diary of Malcolm X. And he's at the City College um, in New York. And I really appreciate you and <laughs> all you do. Thank you for joining me this morning. All right, GBL. <laughs> Thank you, Gloria. Law of the Land with Gloria J. Brown Marshall. I am so honored to be here, be alive, be a black person who is still able to speak out. And I am speaking out in many different platforms, including a podcast. If you want to go to the Law of the Land podcast, please look for it at iTunes. I'm also a poet. And as I promised you, my poem, White Privilege, White Privilege, my poem, White Privilege, I will recite it right now. White privilege was born, foul-smelling, conceived by pious heathens, a perfumed history rewritten by enslavers, seeking heaven, they created a hell we now live in. Extorted by murder, white privilege grew with lynch mob terror. They feared only that our stank of smoky, burnt flesh had ruined their best Sunday school vests. White privilege was earned by pale cannibals, feasting in cacophonous joy while castrating African innocence with raped black women left to carry mixed messages. Privilege him, lower your eyes, voice, mind, make his command your will to survive or face bloody hungry swarms of seething gangs seeking strong brown bodies to hang. Privilege her. Slave mistresses selling their man's brown babies, rough-breasted accomplices, dried-eyed cries, and too frail frame, she says, to share his pus-filled shame. Their privilege is a carnal gift by way of ham or cane or some other hazy mythical curse, still feeding their diabolical frenzy, sanctifying this unholy man-made pathology. Privileges protected on high by black robes blind to justice, shot through by night riders, now called police officers, all rise again and again, expose their guilt-fed fear of non-white skin. No center can hold back the rising sad rage of those forced to kneel before but raw pilgrims, still sucking on their privileged reign, based in 400 years of blood, lies, and pain. That poem is available if you want to read it. It was published by The Aesthetic Apostle. The Aesthetic Apostle. It's online. Put in white privilege. Put in my name. You will read my poem. This is Law of the Land with Gloria J. Brown Marshall. 
I'm very <laughs> perclipped, I'd say, based on the events that have been taking place in this country. I'm saddened because every time we seem to get it right, I've been around too long to know, as her boy pointed out, we'll see where this goes. There's anti-lynching legislation for, what, the 20th time, maybe more. Can't be passed by federal law because of some reason or another. We'll see. And then now, the 21st century, what will it mean? The need for police reform has been evident, life after life after life taken. How many protests have we witnessed? How many buildings have been burned? How many times have we been here as a nation The privilege of walking away, the privilege of pretending you don't see, the privilege of escape, so many privileges. Well, I don't have that privilege. I use the gifts God has given me to speak out on what it is I see, I write about, I lead, discuss, teach. Like Herb, we do so many things. What more is necessary? And I'll raise this question asked of me yesterday. When will the protest end, said a white female, well-meaning, adult, professional. She asked in all honesty, what will stop the protests? And I think, how many protests were necessary to create a labor union? In this 100th anniversary, of the 19th Amendment, giving women the right to vote. How many protests were needed? How long did women protest to get that right? How long have we had protests in order for people who pick our fruits and vegetables to receive humane treatment? How many protests? How long were the protests? One way you can say it, how long? Not long, but longer than the patience of most Americans, I'm sure. Do what you can, do what you must. But the privilege of escape is just that, a privilege that not all of us have. This is Law of the Land with Gloria J. Brown Marshall. Thank you so much, WBAI, for being here and allowing this platform, allowing our listeners to have fuller discussions about these very important issues on 99.5 FM and WBAI.org. I want you to know that I look forward to seeing you, seeing all of you on the radio.